So let me introduce our two guests. India Biel is a multidisciplinary artist, curator, and educator from North Carolina. She uses her art to make visible the complex, emotionally laden experiences of Black women in the workplace, navigating and confronting racial discrimination, cultural profiling, and implicit bias. Beale holds a dual BFA and AH in art history and studio art from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and she received her MFA from Yale. She has been exhibited widely and her work has been acquired by public and private museums and institutions, including the Studio Museum of Harlem, the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College, Chicago, and the Portland State University in Oregon. Her work has been published in the Times, Newsweek, Marie Claire, Vice, and Essence, most recently in reference to this book in The Atlantic and the Financial Times. She currently is the director of the Riggs Gallery and is an assistant professor of art at Winston-Salem State University. So welcome, India, and I'm so excited to unpack this. I'm going to jump in and, and introduce Michelle first uh, before we start uh, our discussion. Um, Michelle Dunmarsh founded Minor Matters Books in 2013. It is a collaborative publishing platform for contemporary art, which brings books into being with the support and action of our international audience. Minor Matters focuses on work that articulates the surface of life, bringing insight and cadence to the worlds we occupy. I love that. Her roles have spanned editing, designing, and publishing, tenured professorship, writing and curating. She has held positions including co-publisher of Aperture Magazine, senior editor of art and design for Chronicle Books, and executive director and chief strategist for the Photographic Center Northwest. Exhibiting significant exhibitions nationally, these include the comprehensive and well-traveled exhibit, All Power, Visual Legacies of the Black Panther Party, which I was able to take in and be blown away by at APAD in New York. So I am so excited to turn this conversation over to these women powerhouses. And I just wanted to give a frame, and it's actually from the book. Um, this is not a book you go into once. This is a book that you live with and that you um, contemplate and reflect. Um, sorry, but I'm gonna say there's some ass kicking in there and it's needed and necessary and I appreciate it. Um, and it's why I, I shared this story just before we got on that I have a local restaurant that has a very cute curated shop next to it. And I walked in for my coffee the other day and there was a stack of 10 of these on the, the desk and they were selling them. But I said, wow, I'm going to be talking and we're going to be talking on this book. Um, what made you or led you to this? And they said, well, we want this kind of information out there and we want our organization to reflect it. And we want our staff to work from this place. That's what I love to see. Just happened two days ago, like so good. So here's the frame from the book that I just want to quote um, and, and kind of lead us into our discussion. It says this publication that it was published, published amidst a global pandemic, a presidential election and a new wave of social upheaval in the United States. 
language and visual representation are important elements of agency. Where do choices around personal identity and how to defi define oneself come into the conversation? You question, does the acronym, I'm saying this, that's the end quote, but I'm saying you too and this book bring into question, does using the acronym BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, build coalition between underrepresented communities and increase awareness, or does it lump all of who are not Caucasian into a category of other? So that's a question I'd like to unpack as we move forward. Um, and um, just one other piece on the book is that 65 Black women gave their testimonies of their experience and how they navigated and were impacted by unconscious bias and racism and sexism in the workplace. And it was India who had the ability to turn an experience and actually a painful experience and more than one um, into a new paradigm because she was curious and she refined it and she was bold. And I'll let you tell her, I'll let her tell you about the creative process. So I'm gonna move on to another image and thank you, India. Take us into how you went from that internship or you can take it from wherever you want into this project. I know, definitely. First and foremost, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to be a part of this conversation. Um, I'm actually going to ask you guys to do a favor for me. And normally the panelists aren't asking the audience to do favors, but I think that in order for us to support this platform, to support the work that's being made, but more importantly, to make sure that people are aware of these types of conversations, I'll ask you all right now to take out your phones and I would love for you to follow um, follow Minor Matters on Instagram, follow us on Instagram, follow um, Jay Sibilla on Instagram um, and on Facebook, because these conversations are important, but we have to uplift those conversations by supporting their platforms. We're just gonna take like literally two seconds to follow on Instagram. Um, we'll put the uh, in the chat, we'll have someone write the links in the chat so you'll be able to see those as well. But this is just so we can continue to have these conversations with other artists, other publishers, but we want to support and enable opportunities for these conversations to happen. So first, thank you so much for doing that. Um, I can tell you a little bit about the work. I was wondering, is there any way we can stop screen sharing? I have been in my house all day. And so I would love to see your faces sure. <laughs> if possible. Yeah. yeah, we can go back and forth. Hang on yeah. one second. So we can talk about the work, but I would just love to see you all. I think I miss these kind of human interactions that we have on a regular basis. Because sometimes I don't know if people have seen it. How about if I go very quickly? Because there's only 10 oh, yeah. slides and then I'll That's come back. True. I actually- I, uh, I have I'll, a question. If, uh, yes? This is Ellen. Um, could somebody like uh, write down which Instagram, what- uh, Yes, we'll put that in the chat. Okay, good. Yeah. Thank yeah, thank you. Um, what um, I'm going to do, I just have 10 slides, but for this presentation, we can come back to it. I'm going to get off it fast. But I also interspersed some real data from right now because just underscoring the realities that we're dealing with here. So let me show just how the work is presented in the book before we so take off. The series called, Am I What You're Looking For? Which is the, the first series in the book. 
Right. So the, the book is kind of designed um, as the day in the life of a Black woman, right? Uh, from the going to the interview, so preparing for that, um, the actual interview, um, the experiences that one may have, day-to-day um, -day microaggressions uh, you may experience at work with your colleagues and your coworkers, uh, like this picture right there. And, yeah, uh, and then kind like of ending one. with women who are seasoned, uh, seasoned in their experiences where they dealt with um, prejudice or discrimination because they were women or because they were black. Um, Great, I'm just gonna scoop back to the front and we'll come back to this if and when we need. Two. Great. Okay. Shoop coming at you to stop the share. Cool. Oh, great. Now I get to Yay. see you. <laughs> there you go. Me too. Yeah. I don't get to see people either. I know. That's I know. Awesome. And I'm coming live from North Carolina. So how are y'all doing? I hope everybody's <laughs> doing great. It's so good to see your faces. Definitely. Awesome. And some people don't have their video on. Trust me, I understand uh, that You know, sometimes it's nice to have your video off. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the work and then I really want to talk about this book. Um, the foundation of the work was my own experiences. I was um, at Yale. Um, a, a student, the only black student in um, the photography program. Um, if you don't know, Yale's photography program is number one in the country. Um, and uh, one of the hardest programs, they accept nine students for first year and second year. And between my first and second years, I was the only woman of color, the only black person in the program. I also found myself at a job, IT, um, and I was the only black person on my team. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about this idea of double consciousness, mm -hmm. finding yourself in this world that you've never experienced before, but having to navigate that. And so I thought about growing up in the South, growing up in North Carolina, finding myself in this ivy tower um, that I never thought I would ever enter and trying to find my voice um, in that space. I was uncomfortable. I felt alone and isolated. And so turning the camera on myself and talking about my own experiences was a way for me to deal with the pain uh, of, of not having a sense of connection to my program, but also to my job. In terms of the work and performance review, um, a rumor, I won't even say a rumor, a conversation I was happening with my colleagues. So I, my supervisor, who's a white woman, I indicate her race because it's important. Um, so I was having a conversation with my colleague, my supervisor, and she said, you know, India, I was talking to Paul the other day and he just loves your hair. Um, he loves it so much, he wants to know what it feels like. Now, mind you, Paul didn't even know my name, okay? <laughs> Let alone knowing that he was having a conversation about my hair. Now I am tall, I'm like, 510. I normally have a big afro. I mean, my afro is so big, it'll make Angela Davis jealous, right? Like it's huge. It would literally take over the screen. And, uh, and so I knew the men saw me kind of floating over the cubicles uh, in the office. So I wasn't surprised when I heard that he was talking about me. However, at that same moment, I still felt uncomfortable. You see, I was the only one there, the only black person in the office. I was a spectacle, the elephant in the room that everyone was discussing, but no one was having a conversation with. They weren't talking to me, they were talking about me. So as a woman of color, I felt uncomfortable, but as an artist, I said, well, how can I join this dialogue? How can I be a part of this conversation? So we set up two cameras in the middle of the office and I asked each man to participate in an art project. I said, I want you to touch my hair. Now, surprisingly, no one said no, 
Everybody wanted to participate. <laughs> uh, and this wasn't in the back room. This was in the middle of the office. Okay. And uh, I said, I want you to touch my hair. So they touched it. And I said, I want you to touch it harder. And they touched it harder. And I said, harder than that. And they grabbed it a little harder than that. And then I came back a week later and I said, well, how was it? How did you like it? And you can hear in their voices in office scene, which is featured in the book, that the men are totally uncomfortable. I think one man said that his hands felt shiny. How do your hands feel shiny? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Seriously, how does that happen? Or one man said that the scent of my hair was on his hands the whole day, which meant this man did not wash his hands all day to know that the scent was on his hands all day. So the idea is that the work in my and what I was trying to do in the attempt of the project was to make the comfortable uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. As a woman of color in that space, I was uncomfortable every day, every day. But I had to be comfortable being uncomfortable. I gave these men something they desired, but then I asked them to talk about it afterwards. I wanted to have a conversation. And when you see the film, when you read the text in performance review, you will tell that these men were visibly uncomfortable. They thought about it and said, man, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Or maybe that wasn't a good idea. But the idea is that I was objectified and they treated me as an object and felt privileged to be a part of a opportunity to have an experience. And so really my work is just that. It's a lot of showing and maybe a lot of telling as well. Talking about the experiences of black women who transitioning from the academic world to the corporate setting, the struggles and uncertainties they face, or mock interview, where I'm asking young white men to participate in an interview with questions that were typically given to black women, questions of discrimination and prejudice, questions that were impossible to answer, questions that made these women feel like they were on trial instead of applying for a job. So the work is a collaborative experience um, you'll see white men, white women, black women, because I'm a true believer that diversity starts from a human perspective. Mm. I just so happen to be black. I just so happen to be a woman, but I am a human. And if you can understand my fears and my insecurities, then you can understand the work that I'm making. And so Michelle and I have found that this work transcends race. It transcends gender. We've all had a job. We've all felt invisible at least one time <laughs> at our job, right? And that's what that work is about. It's about the feeling of being disenfranchised, the feeling of not be feeling appreciated, um, all of those experiences. And so it was a blessing to uh, collaborate with Michelle to make this book. I learned a lot in the process. We'll talk about that. And uh, I grew as an artist um, and Michelle and I uh, grew together in making this. It was kind of like making art uh, a collaborative experience. So, so that's kind of an overview of what the work is about. So you all just got a taste of the amazing um, conversations and experiences I've been having over the last year and a half. Um, and I just, I want to jump in on, on two things. And one is to say, you know, India just described to you a very important um, impetus, not only for the work as a whole, but specific to office scene, the video piece that she, that she made. But I really want to point out in this moment too, from the perspective of what it means to be an artist, that there's the way of telling a story and then there's the decisions that you make in that process. So India just shared the 
bold. I still, and I think somebody noted in the chat, like you, all of these men agreed to participate in this. Like, that's crazy. Um, but in the end, what she made of the piece doesn't show the most kind of graphic and violent components. And that is what's critical to, as a, as a person who views art professionally, as a person who views uh, cultural interpretations in the world, looking at when does someone make a choice that elevates the conversation, right? Absolutely. So there could have been a shock moment where even just listening to India tell us that we're all like in all different ways, right? I'm sure men in the conversation are feeling a little bit different than women. Um, I have had my own issues with people feeling attached to my hair and very weird things that happened from that. But she made a, a, an artistic decision to actually not visualize that element, which makes it stronger because you have to imagine. Mm -hmm. You have to see something and imagine. And that is an artistic choice, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's also an element of how do any of us go through our experiences in life, but it's how we interpret them. It's the decisions we make emotionally. It's the decisions we make uh, conceptually, but it's the decisions we also make visually, right? For, for artists, that's the place where you can be like, wow, this is what happened here that I've never seen anybody else do. And then that becomes a moment of distinction of why I um, lovingly harass a person that I don't know very well for many, many months and years to say, if you ever decide to make a book, please consider me. I'm your girl. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I am so happy. I have a hard time not like jumping up and down because what you're pointing out there are the choices, the artistic choices, but the awareness of the decisions, like the decision for India to do it in a way, first of all, not in a conference room with the door shut, kind of sneaky or, you know, hidden. And then it was, it was your graciousness. It was your way of like, talk about elevate, you elevated yourself from the issue and your experience thought about it and entered into it in a graceful way that allowed the conversation to kind of springboard back, like almost, you know, the, the pieces that the imagination, as you just described, Michelle, had to happen for those men that took part in it was eye-opening and actually consciousness raising in a way that couldn't happen from dialogue or couldn't happen without having put them in an experience. So thank you for highlighting that, that circle. Um, in my work in teaching concept development, that it's like, I'm a cheerleader for that. It's like, how do you show it? And what don't you show? Because what, don't, what you do not show can be as impactful and in fact, there's a, an amazing um, body of work by Mary Calvert that we discussed in the last photo book book group. And she was an, she is an ex, um, she was following the military and wondering about the um, women in the military and why there are so many homeless women in the military. And it's linked to what she had started with, which, which was the sexual abuse of the women in the military. And she went to when a woman was um, testifying before Congress, and there was less than five people in the audience. 
So her photograph was showing you that when this woman and took her hard and horrible experience and had the courage to share it in that public forum, nobody was there to listen. That said so much more. So that artistic decision and how you show it, and that's why I keep going back, India, to the fact that you took something that isn't easy to visualize, right? It's, it's implicitness is so ingrained. Like, you know, the saying where it's like, you know, racism isn't the uh, water we swim in, it is the water. You know, it's like, it's, like, it's like it is the air we breathe. Like, how do you pull this apart, highlight it, and get us out of how we think and act on such an unconscious level to an awareness. So thank you for bringing I, up the choices. Um, yeah. I want to just respond to that, Sibylla, because mm -hmm. it's not everybody's air. And I think no, that's no, no. Yes. like a really right. important, but I, but I think that this is, if we want to have real conversations about this, I think we also need to sort of pull apart that different American experiences um, are in fact different. Absolutely. <laughs> so if you are, you know, or if you are in a, um, if you are in a different community other than the dominant Caucasian community, your, your experiences can be different. And that, and the way that racism manifests is going to be different, right? So Indy and I can talk about shared things, but she's had experiences I haven't had. I have different experiences. We were talking just the other day about what it means to be mixed and what it means to walk through the world in America and feel part of the dominant culture, even if the dominant culture doesn't always view you that way because you were raised by a parent who was Caucasian. You were also raised by a parent who is not Caucasian and is an immigrant and has a very different relationship to the country. So our experiences are individual. And I think to India's point of humanness, mm -hmm. <laughs> to our truths, mm -hmm. but understanding that there is a, you know, a humanness that we share. And the, in fact, the text that you um, sort of started with actually is is in the book because we were discussing capitalization. And this kind of goes back to something that Indy and I have been talking about very recently of where are the new, where are the spaces of homogeny that seems so innocent, right? This is just for those of you who are familiar at all with editing or publishing, um, there are, there are, style guides. So academics usually follow, follow MLA and traditional publishing, usually trade publishing follows the Chicago Manual of Style, which is actually a university style guide that say things like you capitalize this and you don't capitalize that and you italicize this and you don't italicize that. And we entered into the conversation of should we capitalize black? Should we capitalize white if we are capitalizing black? Um, which seems both very simple and also extremely important in a book where there are lots of references to people who are black and people who are white. So I just wanted to sort of lay out that actually the text you were quoting from and, and picking up on the, the issue of the acronym, which to be totally frank is like more my issue than anybody else's issue. Uh, that's why that says it's a publisher's note um, so that that isn't placed upon uh, the, the author of the book. Um, but if we were going to talk about black and white, which is binary, right? Which is not, that is 
That is a major factor of our world. It is a major factor in America. Um, it felt important to me that we address another level. And my own editor said, do we really need this BIPOC stuff in here? And I said, well, if we're, if we're talking about black and white, then, then yes, we, we do. Um, but that itself became a, we're spending all of this time talking about humans, right? But where are the words that we attach to those humans and what is the power that we give them? And so we end that statement saying, we aim to elevate blackness right now. So we are capitalizing black and we are not capitalizing white. And if that seems unfair to some people, we're owning that and we're okay with it. That is so important. Thank you for circling back. I wanted to bring up something. Um, I've spent a great deal of time I, thinking and, and reflecting and learning and unlearning and challenging. And language is so important and it is a fascinating way in which we hold on to tight ideas. Referencing back to our last conversation on the book group, it's about documentary photography. And we're so seeped in the original like frame of the male colonial lens and the definition of documentary. And it is so far from that now. And this is like spanning, let's say 150 years and we still hold on. So we're, we're slow to move. So I think it's very important. And we're also in such inequitable places. And we've gone through this whole process of, you know, the issue is to be blunt, a white one. And then what are white people doing, but turning to black people and going, what are we supposed to do? So it's this total upending and the humanness being the bottom line. There's a lot of really wonderful work that is out there. Um, Resma Menikin is someone who wrote My Grandmother's Hands and he talks about, he puts it in the category of black body consciousness because we have embodied so much racism of on both black and white and we are all damaged as a result and limited. And uh, I, I, after the conversation we have, I follow up with a summary and I send that to the people who, who signed on and I put it on my website and I put resources. And so I will put a lot of the resources that I have leaned into things like finding this book, which goes way back talking about exactly what India had you know, taken apart, or um, there was, um, I'm not remembering his name, who started um, uh, uncomfortable conversations with black men and and making a platform to, to, to talk about this. And I love how he begins the conversation where he talks about, um, we are human and we share the hardness of life, but people who are in the dominant culture of white have not shared that their skin color is part of the pain and part of the problem like that. We have not had that. And so there's so many layers to unpeel and, and, and I appreciate any of them. I'm, I talk a lot about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and I am down for that. So let's keep unpacking India, how you, you went from the, the episode and, and, and taking what happened to you, turning into that part of the 
um, book, but there were other ways that you framed this. Do you want to bring up another example of, of the bodies of work? Because this is a collection of multimedia bodies of work. No, definitely. I mean, this work is, um, this book is 10 years worth of work. So starting in 2011 and going all the way to 2019, so maybe even a little bit more. Um, and really thinking about ways to talk about narratives. When I made um, certain, certain um, bodies of work, I realized that there was just more to say um, with each new project. And that my own personal experiences, personal to me, could be universally translated in ways that I had never imagined. Um, so for instance, I did a series called Can I Touch It? And maybe what we can do, um, I can either, I can actually, do you want to show me? I have one right here. Yes, as I an can example. hold it up too. Um, so yeah, I'll pull. I'll pull. So I'll pull up a couple of series just for you guys okay. to see. And yeah. I encourage you all to. So and I and it's on my website too. So if you want to see it that way. Uh, so in the book you have this series right here. Uh, this is called Can I Touch It? And so what I did was I gave uh, white women traditionally black hairstyles and asked them to take corporate portraits. Now, why would you think uh, I would want to give these white women black hairstyles and ask them to take corporate portraits? Anybody have an, have an idea of why I would want them to take corporate portraits afterwards? We can unmute. I'm, I'm open to hearing your thoughts. I see Freddie smiling. Freddie, what do you think? <laughs> What do you think? Why would I? Why would I ask white women to let me give them black hairstyles and take corporate portraits? Normalize the hairstyles. I bet yes. To normalize the hairstyles. To find out what. To find Ellen? out what people's reactions would be. Right. To find out what their reactions would be. That's that's wonderful too. Fred, do you have any thoughts? It's a little subversive. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's subversive because it's crossing over. I mean, think about that. I mean, if you're looking at somebody, if you're just absolutely looking at somebody else, I mean, they're let's say they're the other. Well, at some point, you're going to have to fuse them to actually fuse them in a way inside yourself to have some understanding of who they are. I mean, I you have it. to feel them. Exactly. So, so that's the thing. I would go to interviews with my Afro and I would never get the job. Never, ever. Um, they would assume I was militant and political before I even opened my mouth. They would look at my resume and say, huh, uh, you speak so well. Can you tell me why you're so competent? Can you tell me why? Uh, I mean, just, I'm just so curious. And so I found, and at first I thought, well, is it just me? Maybe I just wasn't qualified for the job. But when I found that my, my mother, my grandmother, my friends, my colleagues were having the same experiences, I realized that my story was not a one-off, that it was a system that was never designed for me to thrive in the first place. And so I gave these women these styles because we were gonna question conformity. What does it mean for Desiree to come to the office with this particular hairstyle. I'll tell you a few stories. Um, in Desiree, she's actually of mixed race. Her mother is white, her father is black. I interviewed everybody I photographed and I asked Desiree, I said, you know, tell me a story I mean, about your experiences in corporate. And she said, you know, when I started working in the corporate space, they asked me to change my name. They said that Desiree was too exotic and that Anne would be more fitting for me. And they wanted me to go by Anne for opportunities. 
Now, many people ask me, did the women like the hairstyles? No, hell no. They did not like these hairstyles. They were devastated when they saw these things, but it wasn't the point. I didn't care whether they liked the hairstyles. I wanted them to understand what it felt like to be uncomfortable just for a moment. You know, I mean, you can imagine as a woman, I give you a hairstyle, you have no time to process it. And then I make you take a picture, right? Like that's a lot to take in. But for many of them, they were the other for just a moment, just a couple hours. Um, there's a one woman, Charlotte. I'll show you a picture of Charlotte. Didn't Charlotte really like her hairstyle? She did. She loved her hairstyle. That's why I wanted to show her. Uh, yeah, let's Charlotte see. is fierce. Here's Charlotte. Fires me. You see Charlotte? Everybody see Charlotte? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Charlotte was an executive in New York. Uh, she told me that her board member came to her, this is her own company, and said, you know, Charlotte, you're great, but if you send someone younger to represent your business, you get more clients that way. Now, I gave Charlotte um, cornrows, and she was like, India, I always wanted cornrows. And I was like, really? I said, well, do you want to take them out afterwards? She said, no, we're going to leave them in because my husband is blind, and he's not going to know who he's with tonight. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that's wonderful. We will leave those cornrows rows in and you could go home. Um, but the idea, uh, when I talk about showing and telling, you know, these women allowed me to make them the other. I showed them an experience and then they were able to bring their own testimonies, their own stories as women, as white women, um, dealing with the same experiences that I went through. At the time, I assumed these white women had no idea what I was talking about. I was wrong. Not only did they understand, but they had their own stories and testimonies. And I think that's the power of the book is that, you know, you can see yourself um, in it, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender. You can kind of understand the experiences of what it means and feels like to be um, different in some ways. Um, so I wanna talk about, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I do wanna talk about the actual making of the book. Michelle brought it up um, earlier. And it's actually a very funny story. Um, so Michelle actually approached me and said, you know, India, cause I was gonna make an exhibition catalog. I received a grant. I was making an exhibition catalog. And Michelle was like, India, you should make a book. And I said, oh really? Okay. And, and, and I literally just tabled it. Like I was like, yeah, sure, Michelle, whatever. <laughs> you know? I'm not even thinking about that. And I kid you not, Michelle, um, I mean, Michelle, you tell me, you, uh, <laughs> you saw something, Michelle saw something that I didn't see um, in terms of its importance in book form. Well, so having been in publishing for 25 years and uh, moving from a place where I was a designer receiving, receiving projects from the publisher that I worked for, um, moving up to a place where I am, had started my own publishing imprint um, actually with a former student of mine and, and making my own choices about the books that we put forth in the world. And we have some declarative guardrails around the kinds of projects we want to make sure get seen. Um, I'd been introduced to India's work and I, and I saw it in the world, right? She would been covered in the New York times. She'd been covered in Vice. She'd been, her, her different series had been out in all of these places. And, and for a, a long time, it wasn't like a year after graduate school and that was it. Like there continued to be coverage for this work. And this is an unfortunate reality that I found more than once that I then contact those artists and say, hey, you know, I'm sure you've got a book deal going somewhere. 
or I'm sure like there's a gallery you're working with that I just can't find. And so often the answer is like, actually, no, actually, no, actually, no. And so museums who are investing in major exhibitions might even buy some work from the artist are not investing in the scholarship that allows that artist to really sort of take their place in the canon. And so, you know, it's not the first time that I've had this circumstance come up and with India, you know, I was like, look, you've got a lot of work here. And if you do a small paperback catalog and you do a couple hundred copies, that work has been published and then it's not gonna be published again for a long time. So please don't sell yourself short for any reason. I'm not sure what the reasoning is, um, but I beg you, even if you're not doing it with me, don't like give it the opportunity to be seen. And I just thought, I really did think she just like was like, I got conversations going here, here and here. You know, she sent me these very nice two line, thank you, Michelle, I'll keep that in mind. You know? <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna get a press release from some of my um, loving colleagues slash competitors and one of them is gonna announce a deal with India Beale. I can just feel it and it's cool. I'm gonna be happy. And do you wanna pick up from here what you yeah, find? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Michelle's right. Like the work had been highly published. I'd given, given talks for a variety of places and, and those type of things didn't happen. And in many ways, um, when Michelle asked me if I was interested in creating a book, I was actually afraid. Um, it's a real fear sometimes as a maker to think about your work in a different form, especially if it's a form you've never you've never considered or you don't know anything about, right? And I found that you have to trust the scholarship of others. We don't do it by ourselves, right? We need the help of other people in order to activate our voice in order to uplift our voice, you know? And so for me, I had to trust in Michelle's scholarship and say, you know what? Michelle is a scholar at this. She's been doing this for years. And I and, and she sees something that I don't see, and that's okay. But I, I, I see that she believes in my work. And that's and to me, that was the most important thing in terms of working with someone, someone that believes in your work sometimes more than you believe in it yourself. And so with that, um, kind of a leap of faith, right? I said, all right, let's. Let's do this book thing, you know? And Michelle has a very interesting model that I would love for her to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we can talk about how we launched that in during a pandemic. Yeah. So I have worked with both nonprofit and commercial publishers as a designer and as an editor and all of those things frame what became our model for Minor Matters. Um, in the around 2007 to 2010, there were a lot of photographers who wanted books um, and publishers were interested in producing those books. But as there was more and more digital spaces to show photography, people weren't buying those books, right? So we had a math problem. <laughs> we had very expensive books to make. Digital books are very expensive to make them well. And Publishers didn't want to invest the money in making the books well, and photographers didn't want a book that wasn't made well. So there was this little bit of a bottleneck, and it was also a bit of the rise of the DIY movement, and a lot of people were doing projects on their own. And so there were a lot of people 
publishing books in different fashions who didn't come from publishing and didn't know anything about publishing. I was like, well, I'm actually in this business. Mm. What can I do? Like, how can I be smarter in how I think about this? How can I take what I know? And so the model for Minor Matters is this. Um, we are a, we are a two-person business, uh, actually two and a half. Sorry, Jake, our intern is on this call. So thank you, Jake. He's teaching me about Instagram. Um, so you're not a half a person. We're three people temporarily. Um, so I looked at the financials. I looked at the business places, um, and I won't go into all the boring details, but figured out that as a designer and editor, I could, um, through sweat equity, cover almost half of the major expense that goes into a book. So we still need to print it and put it out into the world. And so because Amazon had been in business for almost 20 years at that point, people were pretty comfortable buying things online. Um, I merged a very old model in photography, which has been going around since the 1940s, when photographers would say, hey, I'm going to make a beautiful portfolio. Why don't you say you're going to buy it? And when five of you have bought it, I'll have enough money to actually make it and then I'll deliver it. So that's been going on for years. Um, the Aperture Foundation, which started in 1952, uh, was the, the important element of, of a period of my career. Um, they named people once a year in their little journal. And it was kind of fun to go back and see, gosh, how did Irving Berlin come to this weird little photography journal, for instance, um, to see those names and to understand that relationship to history. So I liked that idea. So I put that in the soup. Um, and then because I work in the arts and in publishing and have never made a lot of money, but I like a lot of books, um, I picked a price point that felt like something I could afford. And um, $50 has been a standard price for an, a hardcover book for the last 40 years um, in art, art publishing. So our books are $50. All of our books are a fixed price of $50. Um, we use an online platform to endeavor to sell 500 copies of a book. So we come up with the, what it's gonna, the physical size of what it's gonna be, the cover, what it's going to look like, um, what the pages are going to look like, potentially who might write for the book. We put everything that in the old days would go into a catalog sales page that people would go around to different retail stores. They never had a book, you know, they had, they had a cover and they had some information. So that's what we put online. And then we, we set a fixed duration of usually three to six months. And we have to sell it. And if we can't sell it, we do not make the book. And so when we go to artists and say, we're interested in working with you, seeing this work, we'd like to develop a book with you. Um, here's the deal. This, is, this becomes a joint venture. <clears throat> You're in it, we're in it. Uh, and hopefully at the end of the day, there will be a book, but there's no guarantee of that. Uh, we, we're gonna try with you to convince uh, an audience that this book needs to exist. And the people who join us, the people who buy a book that doesn't exist yet, um, they get named, right? So they, they are a part, they are listed in this book as 
the people who were a part of its publication. And we started in 2013 uh, and we have published 20 books successfully. We have launched projects that did not receive their minimum sales, um, but uh, it has been an exhilarating process and it means so much to me personally to see all of these names and know truly a village came together, a community chose not just my belief in India, not just India's belief in her work, right? A community came together and said, we're, we're with you, we, we believe in this. And sometimes people ask about crowdfunding and Kickstarter. Um, we, we are doing the same thing every publisher is doing. We're asking you to buy a book. We're just asking you to buy it at a different stage of the process. So that's, uh, that was our offer to, to India in, was that December, 2019? Yeah. <laughs> so like right before this, this new norm, this pandemic, uh, Michelle's like, okay, you have to sell 500 books and then I'll publish you. And my husband's an attorney. So we're like reading the fine print, you know, like, okay, 500 books. And then January, the world blew up. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, we're in a pandemic. And we were in lockdown in our houses. Um, and I was like, I still have to sell 500 books. Now, at first I was like, how can I ask people to buy a book when people are losing their jobs, their homes? You know, like how can I ask them to, to, to buy a book? And uh, I found myself, uh, and so Michelle, so two things happened. Michelle told me um, that this work was important for the world, that people needed it right now more than ever. Um, and this is before George Floyd, this is before Breonna Taylor. Like she, she knew that this, this conversation needed to be had. On top of it, um, I was on Instagram, and I don't know if you all are on Instagram, but you may find yourself, you know, in a whole like you start one place and you find yourself in a whole nother place through Instagram so I found myself on Megan the Stallion I don't know if you all know them I might be aging myself she's a hip-hop artist I found myself on Megan the Stallion's Instagram page and I saw that Megan the Stallion this rap artist went platinum during a pandemic and I said to myself, if Megan the Stallion can go platinum during a pandemic, I can sell a book that is educational and informative and it's not about, you know, I can do that. And so I literally called everybody I could think of, old boyfriends. I'm like, you used to love me, right? You know? <laughs> I'm clearly married now, but maybe maybe you might be interested in buying this book, you know? Um, my sister, my cousins, I mean, literally it took, it was a village. Like everybody who ever cared about anything I've ever done um, shared it over 50, 60 times on, um, on Facebook, on Instagram. You know, I had to be un unafraid to ask certain people like, hey, listen, I know we haven't talked often, but there is something I would love for you to support. And surprisingly enough, people were like, absolutely, absolutely, 100%. I remember, uh, I guess in, in May, or was it April? In April, we hit 400 books. And I think Michelle was like, oh, we're good. Like, it's you know, happening. that 400 is good. And I was like, no, Michelle, we're going all the way. 
we're gonna hit that 500. <laughs> I mean, so obviously, India is feeling this challenge. I I was out of the country. I was in India the day we launched her book for sale. Um, it was actually her birthday, the day that we launched her book for sale. Nice. And we launched two books that week. Uh, and then in March, in February, I was still like, maybe this will be okay. By March, it was so clearly not okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we had three books for sale, all with women. Um, two of which were with women, uh, women, well, actually three women, because one of our books has two authors who did not have galleries. They did not have uh, predefined institutional support, right? We didn't have, a, we didn't necessarily have somebody saying like, okay, we're gonna do X, Y, Z for this. Um, it, was, it was us, we were all in a little ship together and we were sailing through a very unpredictable ocean. And Minor Matters has a group of 20 people uh, and growing um, who commit to everything we do without knowing what it is we're doing. Mm. They literally have signed a piece of paper saying, we will purchase a copy of whatever. I get emotional when I say this because it still just surprises me. Um, we will, we're just in whatever you think should happen we're in. So no book starts at zero. Every book at least has a, has a, a commitment. Um, and those people are only charged, of course, if we successfully make the book. So, so here we, you know, here we were. And I said to India, I'm going to lower the, the threshold. Like, I don't know how we can ask to, to keep this number at 500. And I think, you know, we won't make any money. We might lose a little bit of money, but I don't care if we get to 400, let's do it. And she was like, nope. I committed to this goal, I got this. And it was Mother's Day, right? That that we hit the that we hit the goal. So, you know, there's there's it's a it's it's a journey. But I will also say that as we were having conversations about the book in December to January of 2020, we spent a lot of time talking about. I asked her, like, what is your goal? Like, do you want to be at MoMA? Like, what, what do you want to come out of this, right? Because that informs some of what the book needs to be and who we talk to and the angle that we're taking on it, what the physicality of the book is. And I was so moved and excited and impressed by, by India's own goals for herself and for the work. She's, you know, she was very clear about saying like, this is a teaching tool that is what I want for it. I want people to experience this and learn from it. And not that any of us can hope that people necessarily change. We can't make people change, but we can, we can give them the tools, right? Like we can open some doors for them. And so that really guided the amount of text that's in the book. Um, one of the things that was an important learning experience for me, because of course, as we age, we don't always see ourselves aging. Um, all but one contributor, well, I suppose if I count myself two contributors, but all, all but one contributor in this book is under the age of 40. So that's really important also that this, mm -hmm. this is 
this represents viewpoints of a variety of generations, but the actual contributors, the people writing for this book, the artist, the author of this book, um, this is our future. And so that also gave me a lot of hope. I had to step back and check myself a few times of like, can we do it like this? Well, no, that's, that's not how the future thinks about this. Like, oh, okay, I'll try to absorb that. Um, so that, that openness of learning for me also comes out of great trust with my author, right? And, and the ability to work through those things together and say, here's why it needs to be this way or it needs to be, to be that way. And even down to things like the color reproductions, because typically I would be physically standing where these books are printed to make sure that they accurately reflect the intention of the of the artist. I have uh, I've spent a lot of time with India's physical prints. I have included them in exhibitions. I, I live with one. Um, and all of a sudden I was navigating the reality that I could not be present when these books print. And I have printed other books in representation of um, people of color. And printing is a, is a very, in, in Europe where we, we often print, um, some of these smaller little counties and villages where these printing plants are, people have never seen a black person or brown person. Um, and so there, how, how do you ask someone to represent ink on paper, the richness of skin tone of a human they've never seen. And so I was terrified. Indy and I were both like, we saw, we saw some bad reproductions. <laughs> we saw some people we wanted to rub lotion on the page just to <laughs> make them look a little bit better. Like it was not, it was scary. And, and yet we pulled through it. It took a little bit longer. It cost a little bit more. Um, but that was so important to me also because of our process. This was going out to people in this book. They needed to see themselves and it needed to look, it needed to look correct. It needed to look right. Yeah. Um, and so all of those little elements and details and nuances is, um, is, is part of the part of the process and it takes a lot of trust i was sending things to india saying i'm sending you this it looks bad <laughs> but i'm but i'm sending it to you i need you to see that it doesn't look good and we're gonna try again yeah and, and i'll say that that um, people were patient you know covid made delays right like this book yeah. was supposed to be released in like september and, uh, and with COVID, there were just a lot of delays. And so I would say that majority of folks were very patient. And when they received it, in the end, um, and I, I still get chills thinking about it, people are like, like they bought something from me and they're like, thank you. <laughs> thank you for allowing me to buy something from you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like my sister was promoting the book and she literally was rece receiving messages when people received it. And they were like, thank you, Tiffany, for suggesting this. You know, um, but it goes back to Michelle's vision in terms of what she saw, the impact that it was going, in terms of what it was going to be for the world. 
you know, like I grew up in a single parent home. My mother worked at the grocery store. I could have never imagined A, that I would go to Yale, um, B, that I would be a photographer and C, that I would have a book with my name on it that's in the Library of Congress, right? There's a limited number of books by black women, Deanna Lawson, uh, Latoya B. Frazier, uh, Lorna Simpson, Deb Willis. Like there's only a few books that exist in the world by black female photographers. This history is still being written. And Michelle um, working with her, like I said, was a blessing to be able to add my voice to that history of women um, in terms of how we're shaping a conversation right now at that very moment, at this very moment. So. So yeah, I mean, my mother's in this book, <laughs> my aunt's in this book, my cousin's in this book, um, my sister's in this book. Like when, you know, I had a professor email me today and he said, when I see this, I see you. Roy Carava says, when you see my work, you see me. When you see me, you see my work. Um, everything that I stand for, everything that I believe in, all the people who kind of shaped my perspective and growth, they're all in this book. Um, and so it's something kind of beautiful about sharing that story with the world and knowing that it can inspire other people to imagine the possibilities of whatever, if that makes any sense. It, it makes so much sense and it's been hard. I hope you're not hearing a lot of noise behind me because there is a lot. But um, as you both spoke about, I just have to underscore a couple of the things that you spoke and there's a few questions in the chat and then I want to open it. But um, Michelle, your bold move into starting minor matters was because you thought differently and we have to think differently. We can't think our way out of the situations we're in by thinking the way we think. We have to come from a completely different point of view. And what is really interesting is you both India, your process and Michelle's meant that you really dug deep internally into the things that you believed in and you brought them into being. They didn't exist before you. And that's a very, very bold move. And I think we're honest when we say no one flipping does it alone ever. And there is such a um, resistance to letting go of the myth that there is a one way to be successful and be that just like you thought, Michelle, wow, she's getting covered in the New York Times. Done deal. India's on everybody's Instagram and she's going to be like on Oprah soon. And it's like, no, it doesn't work like that. But damn, you oh, know what? I want her on Oprah. I want her on Oprah. And I can tell you, I reached out to two people for this talk. I reached out to the first um, woman that is the black student um, she is a woman, a black woman, and is the first woman, black woman president of the student body at MIT. That just happened in the last two years. And MIT has been around for 158 years. And they have black and brown people under, I think it's 6% in their population. So I wrote to her because she is our future and she needs to be talking about it. Um, Elaine Welderoth has done a lot to talk about being enough and now she's on The Voice. I wrote to her about this book. So I do want you on Oprah, but here's what I want to let go of is the fact that you get one thing and then all the rest happens. Like people look around and go, I want what they have. And it's like, stop looking out there, start looking in and stick with the work and be brave through all those different times when you have to think outside what it is. And it goes back to Frederick Douglass, who taught us about radical imagination, who said imagination allows us 
to envision what isn't here so we can get there. And that's what we need to lean into. So it's a big applause on new paradigms because that's huge. And the other is language. And it was interesting you brought up flesh tone, but when you were talking before about language, um, I'm not a Photoshop girl, but I remember Teju Cole speaking about this in a, um, in actually it was a presentation at APAD and he was talking about the, the, the tonality of, of blackness in photographs. And he was talking about de Carava and other people. And he made the point that Photoshop, one of their categories for flesh, hello, was called normal when it looked like me. Flipping normal. Like when you talk about homogeneity baked into this, sorry, about to swear, about everything that we see, it's there. And you just have to wake up. This is all about awareness. So anywho, I get going. I wanna open it up to other questions and I just have one in the chat um, that I'm gonna roll back. This is cool, thank you India for having me. Normally I'm running two different screens. I never get to see the chat. I'm like actually able to read it, that's cool. Um, so let me go back. This was from Karen Haas who goes back into the book to ask a question, curator at the MFA. Um, I would like or love, she said, to know more about the student job applicant photographs and the decision to set them in their family homes. And that's interesting too because I'd like to, I brought it up in my notes, but why you use the backdrop you do and where your inspiration was from. Because I like to teach the people that are on here how you learn from other photograph photographers and make it your own. So if you could speak to those two things yeah, and then we so, can open uh, it up. No, definitely. So this is the Am I What You're Looking For series. I'll show some of the book. Um, I used to work at an HBCU. Does anybody know what an HBCU is? We can say it out loud. I'm cool with that. <laughs> Historically Black College and University. Yes, Historically Black College and University. Yes, white people go there. You know, <laughs> I get these questions all the time. Uh, it's actually one of the most, I would say, racially diverse institutions in the country. North Carolina actually has the most HBCUs in the United States. Um, and that's where I am based. Now, I used to work at Winston-Salem State University. And my students would come to my office not to talk about um, their academics or their classes, they came to talk about their interviews. They said, you know, Professor Bill, I went to this interview and they asked me how many children did I have and how old are they? Or I went to an interview and they asked me if that was my real hair. Or I went to this interview and they asked me if I was willing to change my name. Or I'm going to this interview and I've, people have been telling me I need to change my name um, on my resume and I don't want to, but what do you think? And I found that my students were going through the same things that I went through, that my mother went through, that my grandmother went through. We were trying to fit into a space that was never designed for us in the first place. And so the Am I What You're Looking For series is really an opportunity for my students and I to collaborate and create an, um, a platform to talk about these real experiences that students have. Um, in, in universities where a lot of career services are just not talking about it in the kind of mindful way that they need to. So the women are photographed um, with a backdrop um, that. Just froze. Oh, she froze. She'll come I back. Will. 
pick up on that. Hopefully, yeah, I know too. too. Go ahead. Logging back in. So, um, the backdrop is from the IT office where India worked when she was a student at Yale. Um, she photographed that and created a physical backdrop and then brought it into her students' homes, um, those who were, who were open to the process. And she asked the young women to dress as they would for a job interview. And so placing them in the safety and the comfort of their home environments, but then again, inserting that corporate space and allowing the women to visualize themselves in that environment as, as they chose to present while also interviewing them and, and allowing them to speak to their hopes, to their questions, to their notion of what corporate America uh, represented and where they saw challenges and where they saw possible opportunities. Mm-hmm. And also what I was speaking to is the idea of using that backdrop. Um, was also inspired by James Vanderzee's use of uh, uh, a very elaborate backdrop that he was using. Um, And that's what I love is like taking that idea and then making it very, very modern. I mean, these photographs are from the 1930s, these portraits of Black women by a Black photographer. Well, and Vanderzee really used the backdrop as a tool of transport of literal transportation transportation right to move people into different kinds of environments and he would paint them and alter them and so india was always really inspired by him and would pick up on that of okay how can i use a backdrop to move these young women into a space mm-hmm. where they are not seeing themselves i am not seeing them and and literally create that visual so that it exists in the world that that young women can see themselves in the halls of those corporate spaces um, and and other people can see them in those halls too and so one of the things i really am so struck by with that series is it actually took me a while to notice that it took me a while to see that that was a backdrop. She wasn't photographing them in an office, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're they're stunning portraits and you get so much of a sense of, you're looking at young women and how they present themselves. All right, I think she's back. She's back. Um, So you see how young women are presenting themselves Mm -hmm. in this office environment, but then, and this is the notion of seeing, then you see again and you see again and you begin to notice, oh, the actual environments are different, different family portraits. There's a house plant, there's an edge of a couch. So these aren't in a corporate space, they're, they're, they're in homes. And I will hand this back to Hi, India. Hi, India, glad you're back. And I, I'm yeah, it's raining yeah. here. Uh, technology is not necessarily my friend when it's raining. <laughs> so I had to switch to my phone. I hope you all can hear me. Can you hear me? You're fine. Absolutely. Okay. okay. And um, so yeah, so yeah. the series I photographed different women across North Carolina. Um, this this project was funded through Magnum Foundation. And so, um, like Michelle was saying, um, the the backdrop is where I used to work at Yale. I told the women to tell their parents uh, we're going to move the couch out the way. I wanted to photograph them in the home they grew up in. Um, It was important for me to make them as comfortable as possible. Uh, The women wore whatever they deemed professional. And I said, I want you to imagine you walk into a space and you're the only woman. 
You're the only black person. How would you feel in that moment? Um, each photograph um, is has a statement in the caption where the women talk about their experiences or their fears or frustrations in being in the office space. Um, what I found was that many of their parents were there uh, during these photo shoots because we were photographing them in their childhood homes. And it was interesting to hear the stories and testimonies of the parents as well and mm -hmm. how they were kind of um, navigating the stories for their children, but protecting them in some ways and giving them advice in terms of how to navigate um, the workspace. And so you see this kind of multi-generational conversation happening uh, during these photographs and, and, and thinking about the experiences of their parents and how those shape their own perspective in terms of going into their careers. Uh, many of this, many of these uh, photographs have been collected from universities. Uh, we found that universities, um, this work really speaks to just a student experience, um, despite their gender and race. And so it becomes a really wonderful teaching tool uh, for university galleries, university career services, uh, um, in terms of multicultural affairs, women and gender studies, thinking about how students are thinking in terms of their next chapter when they graduate and go into the world. I've met a lot of career service directors um, at universities, M many of them are white. And they say, you know, India, there, there isn't a tool. Um, of how we're going to talk to our students of color. We know that, you know, a Keandra's experience is going to be very different from Matt, her white male colleague. And mm -hmm. I can't talk about it all the same way, thinking that there are no nuances um, in, uh, in their experiences. And so we, I found that the book um, and the photographs become a really wonderful indication in terms of what students are thinking, millennial, young students, and their hopes and aspirations and fears going into their careers. Interesting. I, um, I was listening to a podcast and it was an interview with um, Cicely Tyson who recently passed away. And um, she was in a secretarial pool and literally stood up after witnessing the woman who was next to her, because it was a whole huge, this was her first job. Um, there was a big typing pool. And I worked in New York and saw these when you'd go onto an entire floor and see a hundred people and they're all typing. This was pre-computer and way, way, way back. Anywho, she was in that kind of a situation. And the woman next to her, it was her last day after 30 years and they were giving her a watch. And Cicely stood up and literally said out loud, God didn't put me on the earth to do this. I was meant for more. And she went, wanted to do more. And she literally had to leave her home because her mother was in hindsight, protecting her, but for her to actually follow the career that indeed did change a lot in the world um, that had to happen, that breaking away. And how do you teach from one generation to the next? But I would love to open to other questions or comments while we, while we have the time. I said, it's Christy, may I make a quick comment? Sure. So thank you so much. This was a really amazing conversation. And I want to say that I'm quite inspired. I, hearing that the collaborators in this book, many of whom are under 40, I don't know about all of you, but I'm looking at my faces and I don't see many of us under 40. So mm -hmm. I think that's a really inspiring that 
um, other generations want to know, we want to hear, we want to learn, uh, we want, we need to learn, right? And this helps us um, then in turn teach others within our own generation and, and enable the conversation to continue to happen. You mentioned um, uncomfortable conversations with Black men, and that's Emmanuela Chu, who I'm Thank you. greatly obsessed with as well. And I just love that the format and the framework, and I appreciate, India, what you've done. This is really beautiful. Um, Melissa, continue the good work. I just purchased my book and I look forward to getting it. Thank you. Sure. And let me say, oh, go ahead. I'm, I'll say and this at the end. To, to add to that, I think it's really important that we, uh, who, we, we who are perhaps over 40, um, continue to both listen, um, but also champion. And that's been an important um, mental mindset for me. I had a I had my own growth trajectory that was wonderful and I've had the opportunity to be seen in the world. Um, but it is it is actually on, it is incumbent on us to shift a little bit how we see ourselves and to serve in that role of mentorship and, and uplifting. And so thank you for purchasing the book. That is the most important thing you can do to, to keep it all moving, moving forward. Lee, go ahead. You have to unmute yourself. It's a beautiful book, India, and I just wondered, did any of that experience of being photographed help them with their next interviews? In other words, you're helping us understand what they went through, but are they getting more adept or facile or knowing how to change the questions so that they can really be considered fairly or equally? In other words, this book is not going to the person interviewing them. So how did it help them? And I think it's really important for us to understand that. What, India, you're muted. You're muted. India, you're muted. <laughs> I'm okay. Perfect. Nope, you're, you're muted again. Go back, go back. Perfect. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Um, that is such a good question. Thank you so much for, for answering it or for asking it. Um, I would say it's, so it's, it's two parts. Um, the women, I think sometimes you feel like you're alone, you know, in these hallways, these women are standing alone. There are no colleagues in these hallways. There are no bodies moving and shifting back and forth, walking across. These women are standing alone. And so for many of them, they felt like they were alone in terms of their thoughts and fears. And I think seeing this book and seeing all of the voices of these other women, many they didn't know, um, they knew through me. Um, they are inspired. I can't tell you how many women have taken pictures uh, with the book, posted it on their Instagram page, talked about how, how, how um, proud and excited they were to be a part of something greater than themselves. You know, many of the women talk about uh, the work in their interviews. Uh, when we talk about social change or, or working towards creating a, a common goal uh, in terms of team building, um, they talk about this experience in their interviews and how they were vulnerable and took a risk in order to share their own personal truths with the world. And so I think for many of these women, um, when they held the book 
for the first time. Um, they sent pictures of, you know, videos of their parents crying, um, of them being overjoyed. And so I think it touched their hearts that their own personal stories could really inspire others. In terms of the interviewer, um, I actually do a number of diversity, equity, inclusion, team building workshops with corporations. So believe it or not, these books are actually getting in the hands of the people who need to see them. You know, I talk about the similar to me bias uh, in my work this bias where you look at someone and assume they are different or not similar to you based on superficial things like hairstyles or handshakes, how firm your handshake is, things like that. And so I actually offer keynotes and uh, a workbook that is associated with this book and, um, and as a teaching tool for executives and companies and corporations. And so I spent a lot of time talking to non-art folk about how we can use our own personal experiences in order to navigate a workplace. How do we create team building? How do we create allyship? How do we talk about bystander training, implicit bias? And so, so it's more than just a book in that way. And so my goal is to get this book in the hands of the people who are making the decisions right. to understand that we have to have um, we have to have those individuals educated um, as well in order to move forward. So thank you for that question. Um, you are spot on uh, in terms of what we need to do. Good, great. And I'm just going to jump in with some chat participation here because another person asked, um, Nancy said, has this book gotten into the hands of human resource programs at colleges as an educational tool? And someone else asked if the workbook was available. Um, yes. So the workbook and book are available through the workshop. And if you go to my website, indiabill.com, um, you can send a, 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 an email to myself and studio manager, and we'll tell you how you were able to get um, access to the workbook and the book. Mm -hmm. um, we do a number, like I said, of workshops and, uh, and, and keynotes with corporations. I just came off of a training I did with human resource professionals with a company in New York. And I found that art has the ability to create innovation and change yes. uh, in a way that our traditional, um, more uh, PowerPoint-driven um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and I would hate to say boring conversations, <laughs> uh, tend to be. Yeah. You know, um, art has the ability to bring our own subjective truths to conversations. And so um, human resource professionals, executives, corporations, universities have found this work really compelling in a way to create and, and start conversations that need to happen and that feel organic and relatable and powerful in that way. Yes. And just to point out, um, the book actually shipped out in December. So we're not even uh, a full, I think, yes, as of this week, it's been in the world for eight weeks. Right. Wow. So just to Look put at this it in go. Yeah. Um, this is the beginning. Uh, exactly. And, uh, and we hope that obviously through these conversations and, and many others, um, but this, this is the beginning, that this is an opportunity, you know, for this work to to go forth in, into the world. And, and so all of you become advocates, all of the people, we already see that, right? Like when people experience this, they then tell somebody else about it. And that's, that's so much a, a part of, of what's important to us and what gets the book out, yeah. out into the world. Um, right. Leah, can you mute yourself? Okay. Um, you. Leah, can you mute? 
Thank you. Sorry. Um, I'm so, so excited to be the, the, the inaugural public discussion with you too. And, um, and, and India, I'm looking forward to when you are on all these other like humongo global stages going like, yeah, we envision you there and we envision this in the hands of all the right people. I'm going to circle back before we wrap, but because um, if there are other questions I want to well, let me just go there. Are there some other questions? You can take one more, um, I think, before we should wrap. And I don't want to lose any questions on anything, on the topic, on the practice, on the bookmaking process. I, I have a quick comment, Sibylla, if, if, yep. if there is not another question and um, just what's happening in the world right now, it feels really important for, for me personally to say this, as India was talking about her own experience, my mother is an immigrant from Burma um, whose military just retook over the country, which is why my mother left in 1963. Mm -hmm. And so I think going back to those places of our stories and how they inform who we are and how we move forth into the world. Um, mm -hmm. And India has taught me so much, you know, and encouraging me to remember what we can accomplish. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to say to, you know, to, to all of the people who are listening, like, we all have our own roles to play. And for me to think, you know, my mother came to the United States by herself and left a very challenging circumstance that we're watching the fragility of democracy in our own country, but then seeing it just literally taken over um, in, in Burma again. And like, here I am, her daughter, like making art books. I, there are times when the chasm between that is like bigger than I can even fully understand. And yet I know all of our histories come with us, right? Like all of those people come with us and that's what allows us to move things forward. And these are American stories. So to, to note, of course, in February, we pay attention to black history. We have to pay attention to black history all the time. We have to pay attention to native American history all the time. Like this is American history. And so I just, I needed to just like insert that, that moment and, and remind all of us, like we carry our histories with us and we just, every, every one of us has the opportunity, whether that's to publish a book, to create great art, to buy a book. We each have a way to, to, to attend a workshop with India, you know, to, to move the dialogue forward. So thank you for being, being here to be a part of that. Right. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm going to say a few things. One is that um, um, I'm honored to have hosted the two of you, and I'm thrilled about the book and where it's going to go. Um, and I'm really appreciative, um, India, that you, you asked for the call to action at the beginning to actually follow us. Um, those of us who are in this conversation on our, the different platforms. Um, and uh, as someone who my uh, role is to amplify these stories and it and I cover between art and social documentary because I believe so wholeheartedly in the agency of photography to create positive change and that's exactly what's happening here. I also look at things as a collective that we are so much stronger if we go horizontally and collaboratively than if we get into a hierarchical good better best. So what I wanted to say was 
everyone that's on the call, I ask you to think about these actions. Um, one, buy the book. That's an amazing step in the right direction. Give the book to people that you think should have this. I'm looking at, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and there's some things going on in our high school with this, the Black Student Union. I want them to have this book. I want high school libraries to have this book. So be part of that by making it happen if you can. Um, the other part is I, I would love to see anybody here join your 20 and make it 30, Michelle, that are people that are gonna say, yeah, you are on the right track. You are, I, what was the words? I circled them before, but how you wrote about, um, uh, wait a minute. Um, bringing insight and cadence to the world. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? Like, thank you for those words. Like, awesome. So do something about it, right? And the, the, the other thing is I look at photography as an educational tool. I am an educator and I do a monthly quarterly newsletter that all I do on my platforms is shout out about what is going on in the photographic world that is hopefully going to change the one we're in and that gets us to think differently. So I would appreciate anyone on the call visiting our websites, all three of us. I would appreciate you signing up for my newsletter. I would appreciate you putting out about the photo book book group, which is a free service because this is what I believe in. And yet there's a lot of work behind it and you can support that and help me spread that because I really believe that this collectivity is the way out and thinking differently is the way out. And these conversations are the very, very, very beginning. So that's my thought. I'd like to leave it open for anyone else to, to say theirs. Go for it, anybody. Oh, someone said, "Can uh, I wonder if we can continue to put the links in the chat for people to follow?" So Absolutely. I guess before yeah. we leave, if you, if we all could put um, our our social links uh, in the chat, so that way people can see those um, as we close. But um, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I just appreciate the opportunity to join this conversation and to join this group of individuals. And like Michelle said, the book just came out, <laughs> you know, and so we are, we're at the beginning, you know, yeah. uh, in all honesty, in terms of making sure that it's in the world uh, the way it needs to be. So we appreciate your help um, in spreading the message and letting people know that this exists and it was created for them. Yes, and, and that idea of the ripple. In terms of the chat, we yes, we'll put some more pieces in there, but honestly, I follow up with a summary and I put in all these links, links into my own research, links into podcasts. It, they'll, you will get the recording of this, um, links to Minor Matters, to how to buy the book, I will put in the link to your workshops, India, so that people can follow that. Um, so that will come to everybody that's on here. Uh, we do uh, have uh, a book in pre-sales. I'm sorry, I'm going to do a shameless self-promotion. Please do. Go for it. Doing that. Um, I am in the process of pre-selling my own book about my life. Yes, thank you. That was the very first photograph. So if you want to experience the front end of having yes. your name in a book, that book is also available now in the pre-sales process. And we have until April 1st to 
achieve 500 sales. I am very honored to say that India Beale is already committed as a co-publisher of that book. Yay. Even and though tell- she didn't have to buy it because she has a photograph in it and will be given it. <laughs> bought a copy anyway. Yeah. But I, I just joined uh, about six months ago, the book club, and this is one of the best ones that uh, I've experienced. So thank you both and thank you, Sybil. You're more than welcome. How did you find out about us? Some strange thing like an evite popped on my computer months ago. Um, and and I usually don't follow up on it. Or it was about a, book, a photo. And I love photography and play with it a lot. So I just responded to spam, I guess. And I'm so glad. <laughs> I love spam. of this Serendipity. <laughs> Thank you, Albert. You're yeah. Did you give the name of your great, book? Great. We're glad. You. Yeah, I wanted to throw, if I can um, uh, just, I can share my screen and give you a look at the cover because it's just beautiful oh, okay. of Michelle's book because that was um, what I put with her. Woo, there we go. Seeing that, being that seen. by a DNA artist, Navajo artist, Will Wilson. And it is part of a project he's done called the Critical Indigenous Picture Exchange. So. I am so excited for this. Thank you. Congratulations. Yeah. We'll yeah. see. We got how many days? 56 sales to go. So that's all right. How much time do we have till April? What? April, April 1st. Okay. April 1st. We're on it. Thank you. Much mm-hmm. appreciated. Yeah. Well, I always hate ending these. I feel like we should like, yeah, we should just, but I know that I need to. <laughs> so I look forward to um, sending the um, uh, the summary out. And I guess there was one thing that I wanted to, um, in my research that I came up with, and I just wanted to, um, this is a, this is a, a woman in corporate America, a black woman in corporate America wrote this. This was in an article I found. I'll put the link in the summary. Um, we hold, this is a quote, we hold the most degrees and yet we are still not represented at the highest ranks of leadership, boardrooms and academic positions. From my research, this mass exodus is taking place because we can no longer take being invisible in the workplace and manage microaggressions and bias. If leadership doesn't fix their leaky pipeline, I fear the future of work won't have many of us around the tables. And the only other statistic I had in the PDF that I didn't share was the idea of um, Black women um, and Black entrepreneurship, but also uh, Black women entrepreneurship. I'm trying to look for my statistic. Black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs among women, having grown by more than 600% between 1997 and 2017. So that's the idea. If you, you know, don't join, move out and make new stuff happen. It's like, that is so, so exciting for all of us. So on that note, everybody, thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you, India and Michelle. I'm like, honored and really grateful. And um, yeah, our next photo book book group is um, uh, a week from this Saturday with David Campany on his book on photographs. And you can go and look, we did 17 book groups so far and all of that information, all the summaries are on my website. So, so nice to see you all. Take care. Thanks.
Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.